We interrupt our normal series on the Called Out Cafe to bring you a special edition. Warning. This episode of the Called Out Cafe podcast may cause you discomfort, Hello? irritation, yeah. and sleeplessness. No, can I call you right back? Please consult your physician if okay. the Called Out Cafe is right for you. Hi, I'm Doug Hooley. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote to the ecclesia located at Thessalonica that they should not blindly accept everything, but that they should test everything. The Apostle John tells us that many false prophets have gone out into the world, and because of this, he too strongly recommends that we test whether or not what they're saying is coming from God. And Dr. Luke records in the book of Acts that the Jews located in Berea examined the scriptures daily to see whether or not what they were being told by Paul and Silas was true or not. Now understand, all this testing and checking had to do with information imparted by alleged followers of Jesus. Many of you will automatically have the reaction that the topic I'm responding to in this special episode is just based on a bunch of nonsense, and you're going to wonder why I have even given any of my time to it. Well, statistically speaking, a few of you may believe the earth is flat. Well, the reason why I am giving it any time, it's because literally hundreds of thousands of people have bought into what you may be calling nonsense. And those people deserve clear answers about why the theory that the earth is flat is not based on sound interpretation of the Bible or any physical evidence. If you don't know why flat earthers believe the earth is flat and how they tie that to their faith, and you'd like to know that, this special series is for you. If you believe that the earth is flat and think somehow that that has something to do with your faith, please listen to this special series. I wrote a 30-some-odd-page response to the video I'm going to talk about, and I anticipate that's going to take about three episodes to get through, and I'll tie it all to this same series here. I've checked out the claims made in the video that a friend of mine recommended that I watch regarding the Flat Earth Theory. It's titled, World Upside Down, a Biblical Earth Documentary 2022. It's available for you to watch, if you want to, on YouTube. I've found that it has failed the type of test that Paul and John and Dr. Luke recommended that we apply. Failed on every level. Well, what follows is a detailed explanation of why it's failed. In summary, the narrator, who is never named in the entire video, or the organization that he speaks for, grossly mishandles scripture. They make claims based on unproven or disproven pseudoscience, while completely writing off things that can be proven and have been proven over and over again or demonstrated over and over again. And they make statements which are completely false, based on logic that counts on the viewer not thinking critically or analytically about what they have just been told in the video. I'm recording my findings in this podcast because the video, I believe, represents the common beliefs of those who call themselves flat earthers. I've looked at a number of other videos and they all kind of believe the same thing, just the same information repeated over and over. There are much greater experts on this topic than me. The internet is full of videos and content which debunks the flat earth theory. The only reason this podcast may be different is because... It's, I want to treat the subject with the respect that it's due, not on its content, but given, according to the numbers, over 330,000 people in the U.S. right now believe in a flat earth. And it's my guess that the majority of them would call themselves Christians. The narrator of the video, who is anonymous, uh, the video's name is World Upside Down again, writes off what has been observed by millions of people and can be repeatedly proven about the shape of the earth, how it rotates on its axis and orbits the sun. He negates all of that by simply saying all that proof has been faked by what he refers to as the world. He does so with no physical proof that they are fake. 
I'm not saying this to be mean, but he only offers arguments with the logic of a five-year-old. He offers no physical proof of his claims about the shape of the earth at all, so he is forced to twist and misuse scripture from the Bible to substantiate his false claims. Someone who comes in the name of Jesus, to followers of Jesus, using the Bible as their authority to make some kind of claim, but who twists the meaning of scripture to serve their own agenda, is the very definition of a wolf in sheep's clothing. To be more direct, it's what the Bible calls a false prophet. I know what the narrator means by the world. I use that term often myself to refer to those who don't belong to Jesus. More specifically, what the Bible makes a case for as being the kingdom of Satan. Well, given that definition, of course we can't blindly trust the world. However, what we call the world lives on the same planet that God created as those who follow Jesus do. And they're subject to the same physical laws that we all are. Most of what they observe about God's creation will line up with reality, or even those who are of the world wouldn't believe it. There are many things that the world has created unprovable theories about, like the Big Bang Theory and evolution. However, even those of the kingdom of Satan can't deny the truth they stumble over when it's discovered, such as we live on a spherically shaped earth. So, just the fact by itself that the world believes something should not automatically make it wrong. And that seems to be much of the logic that the video depends on. Now, in the introduction of the video, following several statements regarding how fast the Earth and the galaxy it is in are moving, according to the world, the narrator asks an initial series of questions. They're going to follow here along with my answers. Okay, so first, viewers are asked, quote, Why is it we see the same stars in the sky every night? Unquote. Well, the answer is, we don't see the same stars every night. Throughout the course of a year, as the Earth rotates around the sun, we see different parts of the sky, you know, space at night, because as seasons change, we're looking at different directions in space. Secondly, the sky in the northern hemisphere above the equator is completely different than the sky in the southern hemisphere. Depending on how far south you are, those living in the southern hemisphere may not be able to see Polaris, the North Star, which, us, which we in the northern hemisphere, you know, we use it to guide us uh, to find where we're going at night. At least if you don't have GPS and maps and modern technology and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> the North Star, you know, why they can't see it is because it's on the other side of the globe from them. Now, if you're facing one of the poles and you take a time-lapse picture, the stars are going to appear to swirl around in a circular motion around where the, the pole is, the north one or the south one. However, if you're to set the camera up to take a time-lapse picture over your head, unless you're at one of the poles or halfway between them, you know, it, it increases, the circular motion increases as you get towards a pole. If you're towards the equator or, you know, most of the way there, the stars are going to appear to pass from east to west during the night. They're going to come up and head towards the other horizon. The bottom line to this question, uh, the answer to it is, we do not see the same stars in the sky night after night. Of course, from one night to the next, that might seem very, very similar. But six months after you look at them, they're going to be completely different than what you saw earlier. So, uh, saying that we see the same stars in the sky every night and asking why that is, is a case of intentionally misleading the viewer. Next, the narrator asks, quote, why is it we can see distant objects that should have dipped below the horizon, unquote. This is another question where a false statement is made and the viewer is asked to defend it. However, the answer is, we do not see distant objects when they dip below the horizon. <laughs> If we can see them further away than normal, it's because our elevated vantage point has allowed us to see them at a more distant horizon. 
The narrator discusses this point in greater detail later on in the video. He uses a picture of the Chicago skyline that was taken offshore reportedly over 50 miles away. What he doesn't inform the viewer of, though, is the altitude that the photograph was taken from. If you look really close at the photo, it reveals that it must have been taken from a significant altitude. There's lack of photographic detail in the water below that would be present if the photo would have been taken at sea level. The vantage point appears to be looking down on a wide-angle view of water that's only possible from high above. Also significant is only the top halves of the buildings appear to be present. Well, where's the bottom halves? Well, they're below the horizon because the Earth is round. This can easily be determined if you compare the photo he's using with other photos of the skyline in Chicago, which are taken closer up. The bottom halves are missing. The simple truth is that the higher one's vantage point, the further one can see over the horizon. That's why every military strategist seeks high ground, so they can see their enemy approaching further off. Every sailor knows that ships and land appears over the horizon somewhere between 10 and 30 miles away, depending on the height of the vessel that they're sailing on. This is also why lighthouses cannot be seen beyond the horizon, despite their extremely bright lights, which can be seen from the air because of the high vantage point, far beyond 30 miles away, even from outer space. But you can't see them when they disappear over the horizon of the spherical-shaped Earth. So the third deceptive question we're asked by the narrator, designed to mislead the viewer, is, quote, Why is it that no matter how high we go, the horizon is always flat? Unquote. Well, the answer is, again, that it is not a true statement. Somewhere around 35,000 feet, the curvature of the Earth can be observed with the naked eye. Sensitive photographic equipment can verify this. Now, the higher you go after that point, the more obvious the curvature of the Earth becomes. Commercial airliners fly somewhere between 33,000 and 42,000 feet. Military jets can fly between 45,000 and 51,000 feet. The point being, a whole bunch of people have flown way up in the sky where it's possible to see the curvature of the Earth. The curvature of the Earth has been observed by countless people, Christians and scientists alike. Finally, referring to how fast the Earth is moving, the narrator asks us, considering this great speed, quote, why is it that we feel nothing, unquote? You know, if we're speeding so fast, how come we're not just like, it doesn't feel like we're in a wind tunnel being blown at a thousand miles an hour? Well, the answer is that we and the atmosphere around us and the Earth are all spinning along at the same speed. This is primarily made possible by Earth's gravitational pull. Of course, the narrator says that a giant crystal invisible dome is keeping the atmosphere in place. But in reality, even the atmosphere is held to the Earth with gravity and is moving at the same speed as the Earth and its inhabitants. Of course, the narrator explains later that he or the organization he's associated with, do not believe that gravity exists. We'll talk about that later. So if the Earth were to stop or slow down or speed up, we would feel it. Just like a jet pilot experiences zero Gs or units of gravity when they rapidly accelerate. Once their body like catches up to the plane they're riding in, except for the occasional bump or turn, it feels as though they are stationary in the aircraft. Certainly anyone, millions of people, who have ever flown on a commercial airliner who's gotten up and walked down the aisle of the plane on the way to the restroom or somewhere doesn't feel like they are flying at 660 miles per hour. This is because they and the plane they're standing on are all traveling at the same speed. Just like a person standing on the earth is traveling at the same speed as the earth and not experiencing any motion. This has to do with a time-tested law of motion articulated by a Christian man 
Isaac Newton. And it's based on many observations he had, which states that an object in motion will stay in motion unless a force acts on it. We are in motion at the same rate that the earth and the atmosphere are in motion, so it feels as though we are stationary. Another proof of this, if you are riding inside a 40-foot semi-truck trailer, speeding down the highway at 80 miles per hour or 117 feet per second, and you jumped up inside the trailer and spent only a half second in the air, why is it that you wouldn't be splattered against the back of the trailer? It's because you and the truck, like you and the earth, are continuing in the same direction at the same rate of speed. This question relies on people not understanding the most basic laws of nature, which God, not the world, instituted and rules his creation with. From here, the video moves on from these misleading questions to the Big Bang Theory. Here, the narrator attempts to discredit science and pit it against God. God on one side, science and the world on the other side. However, he really fails to do so. He only achieves pointing out that the Big Bang Theory conflicts with Scripture. This is the one truth in the video that I was able to find. The Big Bang Theory does indeed conflict with the Bible's account of how the world and the universe were created. However, the Big Bang is what it says it is. It's a theory and not actual science. It's speculation. What it claims cannot be proven according to the scientific method as many other things within the discipline of science that are predictably repeatable and observable can be proven. In his attempt to discredit the Big Bang theory by using scripture, the narrator demonstrates his lack of consistency. He says that the Big Bang was responsible for creating the sun, moon, and stars, which means it cannot possibly be compatible with scripture, since those things were not created until the fourth day of creation, according to the Bible. However, using this same simple creation sequence-dependent logic that he's doing, one can say that the Bible is not compatible with itself either, since light was created on day one, but the sun was not created until day four. There's a sequence problem. In disputing the Big Bang Theory, the case the video attempts to make is based on casting doubt on any science. Quote, If the world is wrong about how the earth is created, perhaps they're wrong about what the earth is. Unquote. By doing so, they're saying that the wrongness of the Big Bang Theory is somehow tied to the fact that the Earth is a sphere and the universe is in motion and not static. In reality, the fact that the Big Bang Theory is wrong, and let me be clear, I don't believe the Big Bang Theory is correct either, but it proves nothing other than the Big Bang Theory is wrong. It does not prove as is claimed in the video, that gravity does not exist, that the earth is flat, that there is no outer space, and we're all living under a giant, crystal, invisible dome. This is an attempt to get the viewers to pick sides. Are you on the side of God? Or are you on the side of the world and its so-called science? There can be no in-between. I believe the Genesis account of creation and have studied it a great deal. I don't believe the Big Bang Theory set creation in motion. However, there is so much about the creation account that it is compatible with science, including gravity and a spherical earth, when scripture is not twisted to make a case to the contrary. The narrator offers as proof that the universe cannot expand outward any longer because the Genesis creation account tells us that God finished his work on the sixth day, and on the seventh day he rested from his work. Well, according to the video, the universe cannot expand outward any longer because God's work is over with. Well, there's many problems with this giant leap in logic. The first is that God set millions of things in motion during the first six days that have continued to be in motion until now. For example, 
evenings, and mornings. They're constantly being created, about every 24 hours. Even though God rested, the evenings and mornings had been set in motion, just like the universe. Molecules were set in motion. The aging process of humans and animals, erosion of rock, the hydrological cycle, too many things to try to enumerate were all set in motion by God. He created species not to evolve, but to adapt consistently into the future, into many different environments. Things are constantly changing, expanding, contracting, etc. God created a universe that is in motion and expanding according to His purposes. Secondly, the language found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, does not preclude the possibility that God does not continue to utilize His creativity. He is a creative being. What, do you expect Him to sit around for thousands of years without creating something? <laughs> well, what Genesis 2, 2 to 3 says is that God had finished His work on the sixth day and took a day off from creating. God later establishes this work pattern for man in Exodus 20, verse 9. But that's what it is, a pattern. Humans go back to work on the eighth day. Now, I'll digress for just a second here. There is a Hebrew tradition that uh, one day equals a thousand days and that God created their world, and it was like 4,000 days up until the time of Jesus, and there'll be 2,000 years after the time of Jesus, and then there will be a reign of the Messiah for 1,000 years. That's his day that he takes, and he rests, that seventh Sabbath day. And then after that, it's what? The eighth day. And that's when, in Revelation, we see a new heaven and a new earth created. The Hebrews call that the eighth day. Like I say, I digress. Getting back to the subject at hand here. Well, humans, they go back to work on the eighth day. It's the start of a new week. So are we saying God no longer works or just that he is no longer able to create? Because Genesis chapter 2 says neither such things. Resting does not imply never working again and continuing to rest in perpetuity. In fact, it implies a temporary state of being for a short period of time with anticipation of going back to work. For anyone who says God is finished with his creative work, they need to read Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 to 5. You know, don't bother, I'll do it for you here. <laughs> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from, saying, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Ne neither shall there be a mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. According to this passage, despite God resting on the seventh day, he continues to create a new heaven and a new earth, and do his work. Well, citing Genesis chapter 1, the narrator quotes verse 2. It says, quote, God moved upon the face of the waters, unquote. He tells us the question we have to ask ourselves is if this body of water that God was hovering over was in the shape of a sphere, or was it resting flat? He invites us to think back on any body of water that we have ever seen and then tells us that any time we see a body of water, it's always flat. He tells us this is important because the earth will always naturally rest in a flat position. And since that's true, it rules out the possibility that the earth could have been formed as a sphere or the water could have been in a spherical shape. 
You know, I gotta wonder if the narrator has ever seen a drop of water captured in a high-speed photograph. They're basically round until they come to rest on a flat surface. There, the drop of water may even retain half of its round shape for a time until it succumbs to the gravity and it flattens out. Water photographed in zero gravity also retains basically a round shape. Of course, the narrator doesn't believe in gravity. So, already what the narrator is trying to say is true is not true. We see water, I mean, in its natural state when it's undisturbed, in spherical shape or form. It's here that the narrator begins to demonstrate his lack of understanding of Scripture in a bigger way than he has before anyway. He asks us to think of a body of water that's organized in some sort of a flat mass, like a great ocean, when Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 has already informed us that the earth was without form and void. It has no form to it. The stuff that would make up the earth was essentially a chaotic, unformed, disorganized mass. There was no up. There was no down. It's not even until the third day of creation, as recorded in verse 9, that we read that the waters were gathered in one place on the earth and separated out from land. That would have been the first appearance of any flat body of water on the earth. The separating of the water from the land comes after the second day of creation, when the water of the earth below was separated from the water contained in the atmosphere above. It's on day two that we have any indication that God started giving the chaotic mass of matter that would become the earth any kind of an organized shape. It's also on day two that a major portion of the video rests its case. So it's pretty important. More specifically, it rests on a couple specific words that are found in Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. The first word in the King James and American Standard versions of the Bible anyway is firmament. Because firmament contains the word firm within it, some flat earth theory supporters believe this indicates that the firmament is a firm supporting shell that covers the flat earth like a dome. I always picture one of those dome-shaped snow globes. This idea of firmness comes from the Greek word used in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament created in the 3rd century BC. That word is stereoma. In English, it denotes stability or steadfastness. It's something on which a thing can rest firmly. However, the word stereoma in no way indicates that it's something solid which a thing can rest firmly upon. The clouds in the sky, made up of water vapor, for example, rest firmly, stereoma, upon air alone. That's the idea that's conveyed in Genesis chapter 1, verse 6. The people who believed the earth was flat included some Hebrews and some Christians. However, the idea of a spherical earth has been documented as far back as the 5th century B.C. among the Greeks. By the mid to late Middle Ages, the idea of a flat earth was almost non-existent among most people. Largely in reaction to the so-called Enlightenment of the 18th and 19th century, of which biological evolution was a part of, you know, uh, Darwin's theory of evolution, the flat earth theory saw a resurgence in the late 19th century to the 1920s. They capitalized on words such as stereoma to attempt to build their case against evolution and science. It wasn't due to a greater understanding of Scripture. Rather, it was an attempt to retrofit Scripture into a set of beliefs that was anti-evolutionary theory, which, by the way, is another theory that I do not believe in. Darwin's evolutionary theory, like the Big Bang theory, is unprovable and in conflict with how the Bible tells us that man came to be. However, rather than leaving it there and maintaining belief in the biblical account of creation, while accepting the things that can be proven with bona fide scientific methods, flat earthers tended to write off all things science and assign them to the kingdom of this world, 
which of course belongs to Satan. That is a grave error. God created an orderly world that operates according to laws that He set in place. Humans that have endeavored to discover how the world operates and seeking to learn more about how our Creator works are engaging in what we call science. To deny their bona fide discoveries is to deny the handiwork of God. It's to deny reality or the truth. Jesus is all about the truth. He is the truth. His followers are to seek the truth, not to react to lies about creation by making up equally absurd lies. Of course, science and scientists to this day <laughs> get things wrong. That's why we shouldn't just blindly trust them, but to test what they're saying. We should never throw out the correct observation of God's universe, baby, with the wrong science bathwater theories of this world. The English Standard Version of the Bible translates the word translated as firmament in the King James Version as expanse, as does the New American Standard Version. The NIV, the New International Version, translates the word as vault. I know King James Version purists will not consider any other translation of the Bible. However, the original word used in the Old Testament was neither firmament, vault, or expanse, nor was it stereoma, as found in the Greek Septuagint. It wasn't a Greek or English word at all. The King James Version of the Bible is at its core a retranslation of an earlier English translation, such as the Bishop's Bible. In fact, rule number one set out in writing by King James I of England was to the translator that said, the bishop's Bible should be followed and as little altered as the truth of the original will permit. Also considered was the even earlier English version, the Geneva Bible, and the Catholic favorite, the Latin Vulgate. Original Greek and Hebrew codices in the Septuagint were also consulted. Well, the Septuagint was translated directly from the original Hebrew Tanakh, the Old Testament, into Greek in the 4th century B.C., by 70 learned Hebrew scholars. And the original Hebrew word that the Septuagint translated as stereoma, recorded in Genesis 1-6, is pronounced rakia. That's the word that we should be concerned with here. Everything else is a translation, and a translation of a translation, and a four times over translation. Rakia is this word that was originally used in the Hebrew manuscripts. Rakia means expanse, or what we can see as the visible arch of the sky. It's the inner space or sky that was created when the water God placed in the atmosphere in gas form was separated from the water that he left on the earth in liquid form. The narrator of the video clearly defines the firmament as a large, solid structure similar to a dome. That's a quote. He does so with no proof whatsoever. Genesis 1, 6-8 does not speak of any shell which is holding up the water. It tells us that the water is being held up by the expanse, or the sky. Specifically, Genesis 1, 6 says that the firmament is in the midst of the waters. One way to translate this, especially given what we can observe with our own eyes, is that the waters are amid the expanse or atmosphere. They're mixed in with it. They're in the middle of the atmosphere. Well, we can plainly see the product of the third day of creation on any cloudy day. The clouds containing the waters above, by the way, are not above any sort of crystal dome. The other word in question is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 8. That word is heaven. Heaven is the name that Scripture gives to the expanse, or the firmament, or the vault. Here's what Genesis 1, verse 8 says. This is from the King James Version. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. In both the Old and New Testament, we find the word heaven. Heaven is mentioned hundreds of times in the Bible. 
The Greek word translated as heaven in the Bible is orinos. It can refer to either the atmosphere surrounding the earth, or outer space, or the spiritual realm. Out of the 284 times the words used in the New Testament, there are only about 20 times that it's undoubtedly referring to the sky or outer space. The rest refer to the unseen realm, the place where God dwells. There's a few more times when the word could be referring to either the unseen realm or the area above the earth where the planets are located, you know, the the second heaven. This is like when we read something like, Then I saw an angel come down from heaven. It could either mean that an angel suddenly appeared out of the unseen realm, or it could mean that the writer saw an angel coming down out of the earth's portion of the atmosphere we know as the sky. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word translated as heaven is shamayim. In the 421 times the word's used, it's regularly translated as either the sky or outer space, in addition to the dwelling place of God. However, this was at a time when outer space was more closely associated with the dwelling place of God. The ancient man, including the Hebrews, thought of God being out there in outer space. The two were kind of like synonymous. That's why we have constellations that are, you know, named after Greek gods, because the Greeks thought that that's where the, the gods actually lived. Well, Heaven, as far as the unseen realm, and heaven, as far as outer space, were often thought of as being one and the same place. you got to evaluate each use of the word separately. But most times when the term heaven and earth is used, the heaven part of that term is referring to the spiritual realm of heaven, and the earth part of that term that's used is referring to the natural, physical realm of earth including the sky above it. The term earth typically includes the soil under our feet, the sea, the sky, and outer space. So the place of heaven, in the unseen realm sense, is referred to hundreds of times. The word heaven is never used to denote a solid crystal dome, including in the creation account found in Genesis chapter 1. The word heaven, as found there, is used to describe all three different kinds of heaven, the spiritual realm in verse 1, the sky in verses 8, 9, and 20, and outer space in 14, 15, and 17. The narrator, like me, also believes that the word heaven has three different meanings in the Bible. His meaning are at least 30% different (laughs) than the ones that I believe uh, the word heaven represents. He includes the sky as the first heaven, as I would. However, the second use of the word is equated with the firmament, which he believes is the big crystal dome that covers the flat earth. And then the third type of heaven is where God dwells, which is above the solid dome. But his idea of heaven's different. It, his heaven sits kind of like a physical thing on top of the dome, and he refers to that often. And, well, that's also above the dome, which kind of creates a little bit of a conflict here. That's also where he says that the water of above is contained. Simply put, The video is trying to sell the idea that the heaven, which is referred to in Genesis chapter 1, is the second kind of heaven called the firmament. And the firmament is a large, solid, crystalline dome which covers the earth. One obvious problem with this idea of the firmament being a solid dome called heaven goes unaddressed in the video. I'm sure there are many things that go unaddressed in the video, but this is one of them. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, pertaining to the fifth day of creation, we read of God creating fowl, you know, birds, which will fly above the earth. I'm sure the narrator would say that these birds would inhabit the first kind of heaven, the open sky above the earth. However, the scripture specifically says that the fowl will fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. The word used for firmament in verse 20 is again the same word used elsewhere in chapter 1 of Genesis, rakia. In verse 20, we learn of the physical properties of the firmament. It's not solid, but 
open. It's something that birds can fly in. We also know that the firmament supports the waters above in the form of clouds. Our simple observations as lay people can see that the waters above are held up there in clouds and that birds fly in the open firmament of heaven. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28, we read, The fowl of the air. The word translated as air, and these two verses again comes from the word shamayim, which was earlier translated as heaven, which is what God called the expanse or the firmament. The firmament, which is called heaven by God, clearly includes everything we see in the expanse or the firmament above us, the sky and outer space. Whereas there's no scriptural mention or physical evidence of a crystal dome which exists above the earth, the sky fits with Scripture and with what we know through human discovery of God's universe and with our own observations. No denial of either the Bible or what's repeatedly provable is necessary to believe the open sky and outer space is the firmament. To believe that a crystal dome exists, we have to believe in something that has never been proven and can't be while we ignore certain scriptures and twist others to our liking all while there is no direct mention whatsoever of such a solid dome in scripture. There is no case to be made in favor of an invisible, solid dome over the earth in the Genesis account of creation. Now the narrator moves on to the flood. While not being able to scripturally establish the existence of a solid dome above the earth, the narrator attempts to build a case on circumstantial evidence. Much of what I'm loosely calling evidence <laughs> is based on misused scripture. Starting with Noah's flood, it's the flood that the narrator cites as an example of the Bible's use of the word heaven to refer to a solid dome firmament. We've already established there is no basis for this definition of heaven. Well, the narrator cites Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, which says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were open. So taking the word windows literally the narrator remarks that these windows have to be in the firmament dome, since you have to have windows in a solid structure. The narrator fails to recognize the figurative or symbolic language that the author of Genesis is using here. Biblical authors use figurative and symbolic language all the time, along with metaphors, hyperbole, analogies, and parables, to make their points according to the normal, natural way that humans communicate. Failure to recognize when such things are in use can cause extremely erroneous interpretations of Scripture, such as is the case here. Quite often times when symbolic speech or imagery is used in the Bible, it's immediately defined. Such is the case with what constitutes the windows of heaven. In the very next verse, we're given the meaning. Genesis chapter 7 verse 12 says this, And the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. There were no rivers of water documented pouring out of literal windows in an from an invisible solid dome. When the Bible says that the windows of heaven were open, it means it rained. And the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Next sentence after the windows of heaven. Rain. You know, it's possible that it had never rained on the earth prior to that point. There's no mention of it. Well, that would explain the meaning behind the windows being open, which were once by implication shut. There is a biblical creation science model which theorizes, you know, it's a theory like evolution is a theory, but it theorizes that there was once a great deal more water contained in the atmosphere above the earth. Not a solid, permanent dome, but a water vapor canopy that encircled the earth. 
It would have caused a greenhouse-like effect that would explain why so many tropical plants and animal fossils have been found in the far north of the globe. The atmosphere would have been stable. Temperatures and humidity levels more homogeneous. Heavy dew would have covered the ground in the morning, providing water for plants. The climate would have become much colder once God caused the moisture to fall to the earth. The second effect that the extreme layer of moisture in the atmosphere would have had was to have a, uh, an effect of reflecting harmful solar radiation away from humans and animals. This could have been at least partially responsible for the long lives that humans experienced before but not after the flood as recorded in the Genesis account. Finally, because the atmosphere was likely drastically different before the flood, it would have been responsible for discrepancies in carbon-14 dating of things from before the flood. In other words, the flood possibly recalibrated the amount of radioactive carbon-14 that's absorbed by plants and animals. Scientists have only been able to confirm the findings of carbon-14 dating through the use of dendrochronology, that's tree ring dating, back to about 3800 BC. Not coincidentally, this is within a thousand years of when, according to some timelines, when Noah's flood may have taken place. Inaccuracies of tree rings, such as a tree producing more than one ring a year, may account for any other kind of discrepancies. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, when they do core samples in ice and stuff, uh, one of the explanations that they have so many different layers laid down in the ice of, like, pollen uh, is because the rules were all different prior to the flood. Uh, plants put out more pollen more times a year, those kind of things. So it accounts for a lot of those kind of things. The flood does. As I said, all of that is only a theory because it can't be reproved. It can't be reproduced. But it is a theory that's easily compatible with Scripture and based on principles that we know to be true and provable, which also provides answers for things like palm trees found within the Arctic Circle. Anyway, back to debunking the Flat Earth Theory. <laughs> the word translated into English as window in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, is the Hebrew word aruba. They did not have what we know as windows today when Genesis was written. No, like, uh, four-pane pieces of glass in walls that flipped open on hinges. The meaning of the word in Hebrew implies something like holes that release something that's on the other side of it, like a chimney releases smoke, or a multi-holed dovecote releases pigeons, or like a sluice releases water. When the Aruba is open, you can see through it like through the holes in a lattice. It's wrong to simply assume that the Aruba represents a literal conventional window such as the narrator implies. Window was simply the word that the King James translators chose to most closely convey the idea they had in mind of water being released which was not previously released. The word found in the Greek Septuagint really has nothing to do with the idea of a window at all. What the 74th century B.C. Hebrew scholars translated the original word Aruba as in order to most accurately convey its meaning was, it's translated into English as torrents. The Septuagint version of the verse translated literally into English says, This day tore all the springs of the abyss, and the torrents of heaven were open. There's not even a mention of a solid dome that would need to have a window opened in it. The word torrent simply implies a sudden, violent, copious outpouring of water. We're all familiar with the term torrential rainfall. As I look out my window right now, I think we're having one. A torrential rainfall is what occurred for 40 days and 40 nights during Noah's flood. People speak in symbolic and figurative language all the time. Whereas the narrator of the video makes a dogmatic statement that you can't make a window in open space, and that you can only make windows in something solid, such as a wall, those are quotes, I would ask about where is the wall that the window of opportunity is in? We often speak about windows figuratively, 
they did in ancient days also. For example, when God shuts a door, (laughs) this isn't an ancient one, but when God shuts a door, somewhere he opens a window. The narrator misuses figurative and symbolic writing throughout the entire video, mainly through selective literalism. In other words, he takes the English translations of words literally when it suits the case he's trying to make, but he'd be unlikely to be willing to apply the same literalism to something else in the passage which does not suit his purposes. I'll point out examples of those type of things as they arise. But my final question for the narrator here is, after the rain fell from the other side of the firmament dome through the so-called windows of heaven, what happened to the waters? Where'd they go? We know they receded. Well, where did they go? Were they like pumped back up above the firmament? I know that later you make the case that directly on top of the firmament is where God's literal throne sits. Maybe God just got tired of all that water around. Is God's throne room under the waters that were replaced above your firmament? Did the water drain into hell below? Did the ice that you later say sets the boundaries of the flat earth float on top of the water during the flood? Or was it anchored so as to stay at the edge of the world so it didn't move towards the center and melt? There are so many logical issues that would need to be addressed if this theory to even be considered even close to viable. Funny thing about things that are based on lies. The lies always have to become increasingly complicated as thinking people ask questions. I'm going to leave it right there until next time on the Called Out Cafe special edition series on debunking the flat earth. Until then, may God bless you and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Thank you.